Good morning. We're going to continue our our scripture reading this morning in Judges chapter 4. Again, that's Judges chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 today. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand." Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up to his, at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for who you are and for how you do the things that you do. You are a God that is great and gracious. And Father, if your people would only turn to you and look to you and listen to you and learn from you and walk in your will, walk in your ways, Lord, we would be delivered from all of our enemies. All the strength that we need to overcome is found in you. And so I pray that you would use your word today to give us the desire and the power to do what you have called us to do. And I pray in the midst of that that you would give us victory over our enemies within and our enemies without. I pray that you would help us to conquer sin today. And I pray that you would help us to make disciples today. I pray, Father, that the nations of this world and the forces in this world that are so resistant to the gospel would simply melt at the sight of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would have the faith of a man like Caleb and his brother, Father, that we would know that the the battle belongs to the Lord and that the Lord can defeat every enemy. I pray that we would not walk by fear, but that we would walk by faith. And I pray that you would teach us to do that by your word today. Lord, you have the ability to shape lives through your word. And I pray that you would shape mine today. And I pray that you would shape ours today. And I ask this in the mighty, the merciful, the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the days of the judges, the nation of Israel was in almost complete disarray, and they were suffering terribly. The Lord had powerfully and graciously delivered them out of the land of Egypt, and he brought them into the promised land, which he had promised to their forefathers many centuries before. And all that the Lord asked of his people was that they be faithful to him, 
that they love him and serve him with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, if they would just keep their eyes fixed on them, he would give to them everything that he had already granted to them out of the goodness of his heart. Israel had many battles ahead of them and they did have to fight. But God was not commanding them to fight in their own strength, beloved. God was commanding Israel to look to him and trust in him and watch him display his great strength. He was asking them to trust him so that he could do for them what they could never do for themselves. He was not asking them to do life by works but by faith. He was inviting them to enter into his rest by resting in his promises and resting in his power. He was inviting them to come in and take what he had already given to them. And he did promise them that if they would only trust in him, he would in fact deliver this land over to them and give them everything he had promised. In fact, he promised to bless them so greatly that they would not only be blessed, but this little nation would become a blessing for all the nations of the world. And beloved, you must understand that at this time Israel was just a weak little slave nation. That's all they were. They were among the weakest of the nations in the world. They had very little power in themselves. They had very little promise in themselves of blessing anyone, much less all the nations of the earth. If you were to look at Israel in those days, you would not think this is the people who will bless all the peoples of the earth. You would not. In themselves, they had little or nothing. But God loves to display his strength through our weakness. Amen? And so he chose this little people to do an amazing thing in the earth. And all they had to do was love him and trust him and look to him and believe in him. And we must be fair to Israel and say that sometimes they did this. Sometimes they did look to the Lord and they did trust in the Lord. People like Caleb and Joshua come to mind and there were others who trusted in God, and when they trusted in God, God came through and did everything he promised because that's the kind of God that he is. And so Israel won many victories by just simply trusting in God, going where he said to go and doing what he said to do. But in the end, Israel turned away from the Lord and gave themselves to other gods. They cheated against the Lord and committed adultery against him. They not only ceased to believe his promises, but they ceased to believe in him altogether. And as I said a a few weeks ago, beloved, God is great beyond our comprehension and he's strong beyond anything that we can imagine. But God is a God who feels. And it seems that on the negative side of the scale, the thing that God feels the deepest is the sting of betrayal. And so through Israel's uh, uh, repeated betrayals, God was provoked to anger and he handed them over to to their enemies as he had promised he would do over and over and over again. It's not as if this just happened to Israel out of the blue and, and they should have been shocked by it. God had been telling them many, many times, if you trust me, you'll have victory. If you compromise, you'll be conquered. I will hand you over to those that you are supposed to subject. And that's exactly what happened. And I've been trying to argue over the last few weeks and just persuade you that God did this not out of vindication, but out of justice. He warned his children and they would not stop rebelling against him. And at some point, any healthy parent says, okay, that's enough. And that's what God did. He handed them over to their enemies. As Israel lived under the weight of their chosen oppression, they began to suffer greatly. And finally, they turned back toward the Lord and they, and they called upon his name and they pled with him for forgiveness and for help and for deliverance. 
And though God would have been perfectly just to turn his back on his people at this time, he's not a God who operates like that. He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That means when he makes a promise, he keeps it. And when he enters into a covenant, he honors that covenant forever. And so out of the mercy of his heart and the commitment in his heart, he heard the pleas of his people and he sent them to liverers to save them from their enemies. And he, in fact, did just that. Because God is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable, beloved. And because God is faithful, Israel enjoyed many years of rest in their land, which means that they were freed from external enemies. But more importantly, they were freed up in the heart to worship and serve and love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. And they did that for a short time. But sadly, they soon forgot about the grace of God and more importantly, the God of grace And they fell right back into the same ditch that God pulled them out of, not once, not twice, not three times, but now for the fourth time in the book of Judges. And by the time we get to chapter four, things are so bad this time that not even the men of Israel would rise up and acknowledge that there were problems in the nation or do anything about them. And if there did happen to be some men in that day who cared about the problems and thought they should be addressed, there was none who had faith and courage to actually rise up and do anything about it. Nobody would follow through. Nobody would lead. Nobody would worship the Lord their God. Nobody would call the people to repentance. Nobody would gather the troops and fight against the enemies of the Lord in faithfulness to the commands of the Lord, not not in the hubris of the flesh, but faithfulness to the commands of the Lord. Beloved, there was no man in Israel who would do it, none. The hearts of the leaders of Israel were dull, if not dead, and I think that I can tell you why this is. It's a principle that I want to share with you today that is as living for us as it was for them. And here it is. Compromise leads to complacency. And eventually, complacency leads to callousness. Compromise leads to complacency, and complacency leads to callousness. When we compromise the will and the ways of God, we literally become blind to the beauty of God. We become deaf to the words of God, and we become dull to the ways of God. And at some point, we reach the point where we just don't even care anymore. At some point, we reach the point where we don't get the points. And we might not even think there is a point. At some point, we reach the point where we fall off the cliff of unbelief and either stop following the Lord or stop believing in the Lord, or at worst case, we actually turn and begin to worship other gods. We do this in different ways than Israel did, more sophisticated ways. We don't buy little statues and bow down and worship them, although I'm thinking right now of a man in my neighborhood who does that. He's a Buddhist and he's got statues in his neighborhood, in his yard, but most of us don't do it that way. We have sophisticated ways of worshiping other gods, but that's exactly what we're doing, and that's how God sees it, I'm sure. Beloved, This is a brief portrait of the state of the nation of Israel at the beginning of Judges chapter four, and it was a very sad state indeed. The solution to their problem, though, was not for them to try harder and do better because the bottom line is that in themselves, they didn't even have power to dig themselves out of the ditch that they were in, much less progress in the things of God. They could not do for themselves what they needed to be done. The solution to the problems of Israel, beloved, was to turn back to the Lord and cry out to him for help. They had been subjected to, the Bible says, and I quote, to cruel oppression 
for 20 years. This time, the occupation of the king of Canaan, his name was Jabin, and his, the commander of his army was Sisera. The, their occupation of Israel was not friendly whatsoever. It was hostile. Israel was under cruel oppression. Think about what it would be like for 20 years. I was praying about this yesterday, asking the Lord to help me feel this. And I realized that would be, I'm 46 now, just about to turn 47. So that's like when I was 26, 27 years old. And I just thought through what's happened in my life, through my 20s and my 30s and now into the the middle of my 40s. And I can't imagine living under cruel oppression for all of those years. This was not easy. It was very hard. And they deserved it. They had chosen this oppression. But now they turn back to God. They had nowhere else to go, so they turn back to God and they call out upon him. And again, the Lord would have been perfectly just to divorce or destroy his people at this point, but he's not like that. And so in his mercy, in his, in, in his faithfulness, in his absolute commitment to his covenant, he heard the cries of his people and he determined to send them a deliverer. Oh, beloved, how great and how gracious is our God. In those days, there was a faith-filled woman of God. Her name was Deborah, and I praise God for her. She was a prophetess, which means that she would hear words from the Lord and speak them with authority. And she was judging Israel in those days mainly because there was not a single man in the nation who would stand up and do his job and fulfill his calling. One day, Deborah sent for a man named Barak, and when he came, she said to him this in verses 6 and 7, if you'll look there with me. She said, Barak, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali, and from the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hands. Now it may be that this was the first time Barak heard these words, or it may be that Barak had actually heard these words before and failed to obey them because he was afraid of King Jabin and of Sisera, who possessed 900 chariots of iron and who led a very well-trained and powerful army. Compromise does lead to complacency. And sometimes what complacency looks like is a bone-deep fear, a paralyzing fear of the enemies of the Lord who are too great for us, but who are nothing for God. And even if the Lord says, go take it, I will give it to you. Trust in me, don't look at your enemies. Compromise will cause your heart to give in to fear more than to give in to faith. And I tend to think that this is what Barak was doing at this time. I tend to think that he had already heard these words and refused to obey these words. And now Deborah was confronting him with what God had already called him to do. I may be wrong about that, but that's how I see the story. One of the reasons I see it is because of the way Barak responded. And he basically said, well, listen, Deborah, if you'll go to war with me, I guess I'll go. So this is a real inspiring response, isn't it? (laughs) Real rousing leadership from a man of God. Yeah, sure, I'll go, but only if you go with me. Barak was a coward in the face of the enemies of Israel because his heart was divided and his eyes were not fixed on the Lord. And so rather than rising up like a man of God and protecting the women and children of his people, he had to depend upon the the courage of a woman in order just to go to battle. And I don't say that to demean Deborah at all. I praise God for Deborah. 
I praise God for a woman like her who was so filled with faith and courage that she feared no one but God. I praise God for her. She's a a woman of God who will be honored forever. Beloved, she made it into the Bible. Think about that. God said, write this one down. I want Deborah to be remembered. I praise God for Deborah. She didn't even blink an eye. She said, of course I'll go with you. The Lord's going to give him over to us. Let's get it on. Let's go. And so Barak, inspired by Deborah's faith, if, if not in fear of Deborah's faith or in fear of looking like a coward, they gathered up the troops of Israel and they went out to the battlefield to meet this great commander Sisera and they brought all of their army with them, 10,000 men of Israel. Sisera heard that they had gone out to the battlefield and so he gathered his 900 chariots of iron and all of his men of war and he proudly faced off against Barak's ragtag little army. And I hope that you can see the picture here that this was an absolutely impossible battle for Israel. This was David and Goliath, absolutely. On the one side, there was Israel who stood with a peasant army and with ancient weapons of warfare. And on the other side, there was Sisera and the Canaanites who had a well-trained army and all of the modern weapons of warfare. Chariots of iron do not impress us anymore because we've got things a lot more powerful than that. But in this day, this was the top of the line. These were the stealth bombers. This was the army with all the toys. And they were about to crush Israel, beloved. This was no match. Israel was literally about to be slaughtered. But when the moment was right, Deborah, Deborah, not Barak, but Deborah, that great woman of God rose up in faith and trusted in the faithfulness of her God and she shouted to the troops, up, for this is the day in which what? In which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. That's faith, beloved. That's not courage. That's not arrogance. That's faith. Does not the Lord go before you just like David before Goliath? I don't look to my enemies. I look to my God. And so I go out against a great warrior with just a sling and a few stones. That's what Deborah is telling Israel to do. And so with these faith-filled words, Barak set out with his men. And this this lopsided battle was over in no time and it was won hands down. Not by Sisera, but by Israel. Because of one simple reason. The Lord had gone before them. The Lord God Almighty, who literally created heaven and earth and controls everything in it, was for Israel. And if God be for you, who can possibly stand against you? Amen? I am just so impressed when I read this story in the Bible that the entire battle, this unbelievable lopsided battle, all the build up to the battle, it's summarized in only two verses. And really, in only just a few words at the beginning of verse 15, if you'll look there with me. This whole battle summarized in these little words. And the Lord routed Sisera. In a way, you could just put the period right there. And all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And I pray that we will not miss the point, not miss the impact of this story. No matter what a great woman of faith she was, Deborah did not win this battle. And Barak certainly did not win this battle. The 10,000 men of Israel did not win this battle. Beloved, when Israel simply turned toward the Lord and trusted in his presence and in his promises, the Lord won the battle for Israel as he promised that he would do. They were not going out onto that field in their flesh. 
They were not making this stuff up. God had commanded them to go. Finally, they decided to listen to the Lord and to trust in his word. And when they did it, pow, the victory. It was a great victory. It's recorded in history. It will remain in the word of God forever and ever and ever. And beloved, God did it all for his people. They did nothing for him. It's true to say that compromise leads to complacency and that complacency leads to callousness. And it's also true to say that submission leads to salvation and delight in God leads to deliverance. Submission leads to salvation and delight leads to deliverance. It's a law in the kingdom of God. As I've been saying now for over a year and a half to this church, herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. This week while I was away in Florida, I read again a couple key chapters of that great little book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. It's chapters 14 and 15. And oh, how he learned this lesson deep and strong. And oh, how God made it rise up in my heart again. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. When we simply look to him and rest in his finished work, beloved, he still gives us the battles in that way. He still gives us the victory that he has already won. He, of course, assigns us our part, but just as you can see from this story, our part is not much. He says, look to me and believe, and then show up. Just show up. Believe in me and show up, and I will do the rest. The secret to getting victory over the enemies of the Lord is to rest in the finished work of the Lord. It's simply to grasp on to what he has already granted. And the truth of the matter is that the reason we don't have more victory in our life is because there's compromise in our lives. It's really that simple. As for Sisera, somehow he managed to escape from the battlefield and to run to a little village that was inhabited by the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And there he, he met a woman named Jael who welcomed him into her tent that she shared with her husband Heber. And there he, she gave to him food and drink and a place to sleep because he was weary from the battle. And he felt safe in that tent because he was at peace with Heber and his people. And he thought that, that Jael was going to protect him. But when Sisera fell asleep, Jael was no doubt emboldened by the Holy Spirit and she picked up what was probably the only weapon she could find in her home and she put the man to death right there in her tent. Because there are children in the room, I'm not going to recount the details for you, but if you look at verse 21, you'll see that this was a gruesome scene and I want just for a minute to address this. The brutality of this scene is a little bit much for our modern palates. And I know from experience inside and dealing with other people that a lot of us in our day struggle with the justice and the goodness of texts like these. But let me ask you this question. What if King Jabin's name was Hitler? And what if Sisera's name was Rommel? What if you knew that these people were the commander of the Nazi army? Would you then think that God was unjust to see that he be put to death in this way? Or would you celebrate the power of God to put, in, to put an end to great evil in the world? Don't forget Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I did my, my bachelor's degree thesis on him. I wrote a 50 or 60 page paper on him. Spent a lot of time thinking about his life. He was not, technically speaking, a martyr. He was in 1945 arrested and put into jail and finally he was killed in the final days of the Nazi regime. But the reason he was killed was because he tried to put Hitler to death. He was part of a plot along with other people that tried to murder Hitler. 
And I'm not sure if I would have done what he did or not. He didn't say that every Christian should try to do what he tried to do, but it was heavy on his conscience that the only way to deal with the pervasive evil in the world at that time was to put the leader to death, and he tried and failed. But I promise you that if he succeeded, nobody would have counted it a sin, not in the end. People would have counted it a great victory for humanity. And beloved, this is the kind of thing that's happening right here in Judges chapter 4. The brutality of, of King Jabin, the brutality of Sisera is finally coming back upon their heads. God had warned these people of Canaan for 800 to 1,000 years that they should turn from their wicked ways. Just let this sink in. This is like four times the, 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 the age of the United States of America. God is warning them and warning them and warning them and warning them. And they will not listen to God. They will not turn from their wicked ways. And there comes a time, beloved, if we will not turn from our wicked ways, we will perish in our wicked ways. And their time of judgment had come after a millennium of patience from God. Barak, Deborah, the 10,000 men of Israel, and Jael were God's instruments of judgment. And he was perfectly just to put this man to death. When Jael finished her deed, Deborah's prophecy about her to Barak had been filled because earlier, I forgot to mention this, but earlier God told Barak that, listen, I will go out to the battlefield with you, but I'm going to tell you something. The direction that you're going in your life is going to win no glory for you at all, but God is going to hand the great commander Sisera over to a woman. And when Deborah said that, she was not talking about herself. She was talking about Jael. Deborah was making a prophecy, and now in Jael, the prophecy came true. This man was dead. He was handed over to a woman, not to the commander of Israel's army. And with that, she went out to find Barak, who was out in the fields looking for Sisera, because you remember, he had escaped from the battlefields. And so there, Jael and Barak met. She told him that she had put him to death, and they no doubt celebrated the gracious hand of God that had just freed Israel from 20 years of cruel oppression. And this scene emboldened all of Israel so that they rose up and began to fight against the rest of Canaan and slowly but surely they won the battle and the Bible says that in the end they destroyed King Jabin and all of his kingdom to the glory of God and by the grace of God. On the day when Sisera was defeated, you'll see in chapter five that Deborah and Barak sang a song that Deborah had wrote and the song was sung and cherished and even memorized in Israel for many centuries to come, in fact, down to our own day. You'll see there in chapter five, verse two, that Deborah begins her song by celebrating the fact that the leaders of Israel finally rose up and took the lead in Israel. They finally came out of their complacency, rose up in the name of the Lord, called upon the name of the Lord, trusted in the promises of the Lord, submitted to the commands of the Lord, and in this way, they won the victory over enemies who were way too strong for them. And then Deborah celebrates the fact that the people were not callous and stubborn, but rather they rose up and followed their God-appointed leaders. And Deborah blessed God for this with all of her heart and soul and mind and strength. She gave all the glory to God. Look with me at verses four and five where she sings these words. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Beloved, she's saying, 
She's saying that God in his power and in his presence won this battle. When he rose up, all of his enemies fell down. That's what she's celebrating. Even though the people of Israel lived in an awful state of compromise, when they turned to the Lord and humbled themselves before him, he won the victory for them. And so in verses 10 and 11, she calls on all the people to rise up and praise God for what he had done. Because he is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable. And when his people turn to him, he works on their behalf. In verses 12 through 31, we're not, or through 30, we're not going to go through this because Deborah just recounts the battle. She recounts the historic act of Jael, and she concludes her prophetic song with the words of third, uh, verse 31, if you'll please look there with me. I consider this to be a prophecy. So, may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. She is saying, May all those who reject the great and gracious God of heaven, who woos and warns people to turn from their wicked ways, who waits so patiently for them, who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, may all who finally reject this God, no matter how gracious he has been to them, may all of them perish in their wicked ways if they will not turn from their wicked ways. God does not want that to happen. The Bible says it clearly. He wants everybody to turn and repent. But if we will not repent, he will hand us over to our own ways. As for the friends of God, as for those who hear and heed his call, as for those who finally turn to the Lord no matter how long he has been waiting for them, as for those who finally submit to God and rest in his finished work, may these ones be like the sun as he rises in his might. May they rise from death to life from darkness to light, from obscurity to prominence as they depend upon the Lord and trust in him all the days of their lives. Now one of the reasons that I consider these final words of Deborah's song to be prophetic words is because as soon as I read them a couple weeks ago and I began preparing for today, immediately began ringing in my ears the words of Luke chapter one, verses 76 and following. So will you please turn there with me? It says Luke chapter one, I'm going to begin in verse 76 and read through verse 79. These are some of the words that Zechariah spoke over his newborn son, John, who would later be known as John the Baptist or John the one who baptizes people. So the son had been born through very adverse circumstances, and when he was born, his father spoke a strong and prophetic word over him. So in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 76, here is part of what he said. And you, child, you, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So John will go before Jesus to prepare the way. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. Because God is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable, beloved. And what's going to happen? Whereby... The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Beloved, the sunrise from on high is Jesus Christ. That's who Zechariah is talking about. Jesus came to give light to those who sit in darkness. He came to give light, life to those who sleep in death. He gave to, came to give peace to those who live in turmoil because he is that friend of God that Deborah prophesied about when she said that he would rise like the sun in his might. 
Remember that Deborah was fundamentally a prophetess. And I believe that she was speaking of Jesus when she said what she said at the end of chapter 5. Because again, it is clear from our perspective, it is clear that Jesus is the son that rose up to fight all the battles of the Lord with perfect faith and perfect obedience. He's the only one that would turn to God and give all of his heart to, to God without anything at all reserved for anyone else. He's the only one who would listen perfectly to the words of God. He's the only one in Israel that would do perfectly the will of God. He's the only one in Israel that would follow perfectly in the ways of God. He is the only one in history that ever won all of the battles of God. He is the sun that has risen in its might. On their own strength, Israel would never overcome their internal struggles or their external enemies. In fact, we're going to see very sadly next week that no matter how much power and patience God demonstrated to his people in these chapters, by the beginning of chapter 6, you can look there and already see it for yourself, they're right back in the same hole that they had just come out of by the grace of God. And the sad fact of life is, beloved, that every one of us is just like the people of Israel. We compromise our belief in God. We become complacent. We become callous over time. And we become trapped by the things that God had designed for us to overcome. We find ourselves being conquered by the very things that God sent us to conquer. And sometimes we find ourselves in places of deep despair, of paralyzing hopelessness, and right on the brink of unbelief. Like Israel, beloved, we need a Savior. We desperately need a Savior. There's not one of us in this room who can live up even to our own rules, much less to the rules of God. And so we need someone to deliver us from the forces within and without that are just too powerful for us. And praise God for the good news that Jesus Christ has come to be that Savior for us. Jesus has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and would never do for ourselves. He has come to set us free from the things that enslave us right now this day. Some of us are struggling powerfully with besetting sins. And I'm here to give you good news that Christ came to set you free from these things. He did. You can live in the day when you are free from the things that are paralyzing you right now. Christ has come to be life and light and peace toward us. And all he asks is this. He says it in John chapter 6. The only work that I ask of you is look to me and believe. That's it. That's it. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive. Rest in Christ. Don't try to overcome your sin. Look to Christ and he will overcome your sin. Don't try to win the victory. Look to Christ and he will win the victory. Don't try to lead people to Jesus. Look to Christ. He will draw people to himself. Beloved, the battle is the Lord's and all he calls us to do is look up to him and say, yes, Father, I will do what you call me to do today. No, I am not saying that life is going to be easy if we turn to Christ and really give ourselves over to him. I'm not saying that we're not going to struggle with temptation and sin and failure. We're, we are going to struggle with these things. But I am saying, because I believe the Bible says, that when you turn to Jesus Christ, you are instantly freed from the penalty of your sins because he paid that penalty for you. You are freed from the clutches of Satan when you turn to Jesus Christ. Forever you are free. And I am saying that over time in this life, you'll be free from the power of sin as Christ teaches you to overcome and enjoy his pleasure more than the world's pleasure. And I am saying that in the final day, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be free from the very presence of sin, the very presence of evil, and you will be unthinkably free, free from the depth of your heart 
to worship God with all of your heart. Oh, beloved, we cannot imagine the joy that people have in heaven when they're free from sin to worship Jesus. It's a joy that is unmatched by all the pleasures of this world. And so, no, life in Christ is not necessarily easy, but it's very, very, very good because when you're in him, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When you're in him, you are finally free from all your enemies within and without. If Jesus Christ is for us, who can stand against us? The Bible says that even the demons and Satan himself tremble at the feet of Jesus. So every Sisera in your life that is arrayed against you with 900 iron chariots and a great army, every one of them trembles before Jesus Christ. And if he fights on your behalf, you will know the victory. If it was true for Israel, it's even more true for us who are in Christ. Because God is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable. After this war with Sisera, Israel had 40 years of rest. But when we rest in Jesus Christ, beloved, the Bible tells us that we have rest forever because we're in him. And yes, we still have battles to fight, but you know what they're like? They're just like mop-up operations. It's as though uh, Hitler was killed. You know, this happened in, in our people's history. Hitler is dead, and essentially the war is over, but there were mop-up operations that had to happen over the next year or so. That's the situation that we, were in, that we are in right now. On the cross of Christ, Jesus killed Satan and all of his plans. On the cross of Christ, Jesus defeated death because three days later, he rose back from the dead. And now it's all about mop-up operations. And if you look to Christ and trust in Christ and believe in Christ, well, then you belong to Christ forever and ever, and there's nothing Satan and all his workers can do about it. And I think that fundamentally, God has left us here on this earth for two reasons. One is to demonstrate the grace and power of his hand to help us overcome in the midst of an evil world. It will be easy to overcome in heaven because God is going to remove from us the presence and power of evil. But here, what a glory it is to him for his people to love him more than the pleasures of this world when the pleasures of this world are so strongly trying to woo us into themselves. God left us here to get glory for himself through holiness. And the other reason he left us here was to go to the nations and make disciples of some people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Heaven and hell are on the line, beloved, and God has appointed us to be his ragtag army of peasants to go into this world with all their forces arrayed against us and preach the simple message of Jesus so that people believe. That's why God has left us here. And if we will simply just look to him, just look to him and trust in him, we will have the victory. So I want to close this morning by saying a brief word to the men of this church. And simply, all I want to say, brothers, is rise up in faith and lead the way. Don't be complacent men. And if there's complacency in your heart, go and look in the mirror because there's certainly compromise in your life. Where there's compromise, there's complacency. But where there's submission, there's salvation. Where there's delight in God, there is deliverance. Where there is pleasure in God, there is power for the ministry. So men of this church, I'm calling on you to lead the way. The temperature of glory of Christ fellowship will be set by you. If your passion for God is hot, the temperature of the passion of God in this church will be hot. And if your temperature for passion, of a passion with God is cold, the church will be cold. God has assigned us to lead, so I'm calling on you, brothers, to rise up and lead. And I'm not talking about all kinds of complicated things. I'm just saying, give yourself to God first and foremost. Love him with all your heart and lead your family, lead your church in the way that God would have you go. God will give you power. 
Christ is like the sun rising in his might. And when you're in Christ, you rise up with him. He's doing all the heavy lifting. He's just saying, men, come day by day. Look to me, trust in me, obey me, and I will do everything else. Women, I want to call on you as well. I want to call on you to be like Deborah and look to the Lord your God and love him and trust him and follow him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. God has called upon men to lead the way, but God has not made women second-class citizens in his kingdom. He has made you full children of God with all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto. He has made you priests in his kingdom, priests in this world, and women of God. God is calling on you to rise up and love him and also contribute your heat of passion for God to raise up the, the temperature of passion for God in this church. If you love him with your heart in private, he will honor you in public, and we will all benefit from your private love of God. So women, I'm calling upon you to fix your eyes on Christ and love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And finally, I just want to talk to the youth of this church. If you're 12 to 18 in that region somewhere, I just want to call upon you and say, and you too. The call of God is upon you, young people. You are old enough to know God. You are old enough to hear from God. You are old enough to serve God. And God often uses people in your age category to lead the way. Did you know, young people, that almost every revival in the history of the world was essentially rooted in the young people of that generation, whatever the generation was? Sure, there were older men preaching the gospel, but but generally speaking, it was the young people who were caught on fire with passion for God, who were saying to their elders, let's follow God and not compromise. And I want to call upon you, lead the way if God calls you to do that. Respect your parents, respect your elders, of course, but fear the Lord alone. Love him, give him all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and begin pleading for insight and passion for what he might do in your life, in this church, in this city. I just want to call on all of us to pray and believe that God could do great things, beloved, beyond what we have imagined. I want to call on you to rise up and pray for this city, pray for this state, pray for this nation, pray for our worlds. This very week I was at a conference where the the call was issued that we would pray that every other revival in history from then to now would have been nothing more than a prelude to the great revival that might come in our own times. And I pray that we will pray like that, that God will pour out his spirit in power and every Sisera will fall before his presence. Oh, beloved, please, let's have faith together. Let's look to Christ. Let's pray big things for the glory of Christ. I close with this little statement. Maybe it'll help you. Maybe it won't. It's been just kind of ringing in my heart all week. We are in a war, so let's stand up and fight. We in Christ are friends of God. Let's rise like the sun in its might. Let's ask God to help us with that now. Lord, we have heard your word, and I pray now that by your spirit you would work powerfully in our hearts and lives. I pray that you would apply this word to many situations that we're all facing right now. And I pray that you would cause us as a people to rise up and overcome our sin by faith that we might go into the world and make disciples of the nations by faith. Lord, we don't trust in our efforts. We don't even trust in our faith. We trust in you. So I pray that you would help us to live by this principle. Herein lies the key to life cease to strive and rest in Christ. And then, Lord, as we rest in you, please show us what you can do. 
Teach us, Lord, that all the things we're learning right now are not just stories about a God who used to do stuff in an old, ancient time, but we're talking about a God who is alive and well right now and working in our midst. Please, Lord, show us your presence, I pray, in the mighty, the merciful, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.